a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. New York loves a mystery, if it has fantastic touches. Reads the January 20th, 1947 headline in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. On the bottom of the article, there's a cartoon of a busy New York City subway platform. Amidst the bustle of bodies, a well-dressed woman in a black fur coat and black heels is posed with her hands outstretched and a look of shock on her face. Behind her, there's a young blonde woman in a leopard jacket holding a present. This image looks like a snapshot from an old-timey movie but it's really a chaotic scene from a bizarre crime that took place a year earlier. New Year's Eve in New York City, an unsuspecting crowd in the subway station at Times Square goes about their morning commute. It's crowded, as it usually is during rush hour. The subway rolls into the station and out walks a well-dressed woman in black, the attractive Mrs. Olga Rocco. She's 28 with short, shiny black hair and wears a look of concern on her face. Olga is on edge. She's keeping her eyes peeled for someone. But what she doesn't realize is the someone she needs to be watching for is right behind her. A young blonde woman in a leopard jacket, 19-year-old Pearl Lusk, is following Olga. She's carrying a large Christmas present at her waist wrapped in green paper with the words, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year printed all over. She stops to kneel down, her eyes trained on Olga. Suddenly, to everyone's surprise, a thunderous clap rings out in Times Square Station, sending subway riders scurrying for cover. In the middle of the chaos, Olga lies on the floor screaming, blood gushing from her left leg. A man in the crowd rushes to her side to tie a tourniquet around her leg. I'm going to die, she says. He's threatened me before. This time, he got me. Only a few feet in front of Olga, Pearl Lusk, with the Christmas present in hand, is spattered with blood. Smoke clears around her, and she stands bewildered, seemingly clueless as to what's going on. The first officer on the scene overhears Pearl saying she was just taking the woman's picture. So... Who shot Olga? This is a New York mystery with fantastic touches. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is... Crime of a Lifetime. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So we're going to start our story with the bright-eyed, beautiful 19-year-old Pearl Lusk. After she leaves high school in Pennsylvania, Pearl Lusk arrives in New York City in its fall of 1946. 
She is eager to make a name for herself, to become an independent lady. And so far it's going great. She gets a job in a department store as a salesperson and she's making enough money that she can get a furnished room on the Upper West Side. How much do you think that runs you? Um, 1946. 1946. Oh, what I'm do you so think bad it runs? This. Uh a, a penny. <laughs> a copper penny. <laughs> I didn't think you were going to say that. It's $5, though, which that's wow. pretty crazy, right? That's a steal. Literally, a steal. She can afford it, so she's excited. She's going to be out on her own for the first time. She gets some super cute pink curtains to hang in the place to make it her own. And I'm like, you're killing it, Pearl. Great choice. So Pearl... In her new independent life as a single lady in New York, she's wearing mascara and dark lipstick. And during the week, she would go out with her work friends at lunch. And her lunch order, get this, is incredible. She'd get a lobster tail salad, a Coke, and a junior banana split, which was her favorite, which I love. If you're going out to lunch, get your favorite meal. She's living her life. It's like very Sex in the City vibes with her work friends, but like imagine 1940s. Um... And at night, she'd go home, and for entertainment, she would read detective novels. I really genuinely think if we met her, she would be our friend. Definitely. And people describe her as laughing and smiling all the time. You know, she's like a live, laugh, love kind of girl. Yeah, but everything's about to change, right? And it all sort of starts off with this faded ride on the New York City subway, and we know nothing ever good has happened on the New York City subway She's on the way to visit her mom and stepfather in Brooklyn for Thanksgiving, and the subway's crowded, but she sees a man across the way, and he's super cute, and they make eye contact. She's usually got a vibe of being, you know, careful. She's smart about it. She wants to be careful around men she doesn't know, but this guy, man, he's hot. He's tall. He's wearing this gray double-breasted suit he looks good in. He's got a tie with ivory and gold flowers. And she's like, oh, this guy's looking at me too. And quickly he approaches her. Ugh, I dream of this meet cute. So he introduces himself to her as Alan LaRue. What? Hmm? Alan LaRue. Oh. It's a fancy name for a fancy man. So he offers to take her out to a drink, but as much as she likes him, she politely declines his offer, and she gets up at her stop thinking she'll never see him again. A very New York moment. You lock eyes, he asks her out, no thank you, um, she doesn't even give him her name, which is a very smart thing to do. But she can't stop thinking about him. It's his dreamboat that came up to her. Right, and then uh, flash forward a few days to Christmas Eve, Pearl arrives at work at the department store. All her pals are gathering around because they're about to make an announcement. And buzzkill, the announcement is, y'all fired. Because Christmas is over. They don't need the extra help. So this is a big deal, right? She's pretty devastated because she stands to lose the salary, which would mean she'd lose her great room with her pink curtains and her friends and her mascara and her Junior banana splits. She stands to really lose everything in this moment. So she's upset. So the next day, she's on the subway to Brooklyn for Christmas at her mother's house. Um, and she thinks of Alan again. She's like, ugh, wouldn't it be nice to get like a little boost of confidence from a strange man? Um, and on her way home from her mother's from Christmas dinner, as luck would have it, she sees a man in a gray suit with a blue and gold tie. 
You guessed it, it's Alan LaRue. As tall and as handsome as she remembers, and he asks her for a drink, and at this time, she immediately accepts. So they hop off the train at Times Square, and they find a bar, and Pearl orders a scotch and 7-Up. Gross. But (laughs) you know what? (laughs) I love Pearl. Get your 7 and 7 on, girl. She tells him all about her difficult landlady and how she just got laid off. And he seems really sympathetic to the story she's telling. But not just sympathetic. There's something else going on, another layer, a sort of change she sees happen in his eyes. And she'll later recall, he looked at me with an interest like any other man at first. But the more I talked, the more I felt he had some different kind of interest in me. Typically, if your gut is telling you something, if your blink is telling you something, it's right. And Mm -hmm. in this case, it's right. Pearl's totally right. He's not just interested in her romantically. He has a job for her. So he tells her he's an insurance detective. He's a private investigator. And he's been hired by an insurance company to catch a jewel thief who is still on the loose. And he could use her help. Now, remember, she's reading these detective novels. And so she's fully in it, right? Yeah, she's... Very up to the challenge. I think what's going through Pearl's head at this point is, wait, I get to go be Nancy Drew to this hot Perry Mason that I just met? Sure, where do I sign? And he says, okay, so let's meet again tomorrow. And Pearl agrees. And early the next morning, she is ready to go. She's nervous. She's excited. She's feel like she's laying different outfits out on the bed to see what works. And she settles on a really nice dress and a faux Persian lamb coat. And on top of her curly blonde hair, she's going to put this gray hat that has a huge white bow. Now, I've seen pictures of the hat, and I have to tell you, it's it's a bit much, but probably in style at the time, right? I would assume as much. It feels very like Jojo Siwa of 1940s. Totally. You know? It's like a huge bow. <laughs> so... She meets Alan LaRue. God, I love that name. Alan LaRue. She meets... There's no way that's a made-up name. There's no way. So she meets Alan LaRue at 42 West 39th Street, which is the home of Croydon Hat Company. Maybe where she got her hat. We'll never know. So he tells her that the jewel thief is in that building. Her name? Olga Rocco. Unfortunately for Alan LaRue, Olga Rocco has already gotten him. She already knows who he is and that he's following her. So he has to stay back. So... The best plan of action is for him to get someone else to get close to her. And that someone is Pearl. So LaRue pulls out a photo of a very attractive woman with shiny black hair. He tells her to go into the office and get a good look at her. Pearl is ready for this challenge. She walks into the receptionist and asks for a Miss Sadie White. Now, nobody works there named Sadie White, but it gives her a chance to eye her mark, this Olga, who is sitting there by the door of a private office. And Pearl memorizes what Olga is wearing, her clothes, her face, her hat, her coat. Meanwhile, the receptionist says, there's no one here named Miss Sadie White. And Pearl says, oh, you know, my mistake, and leaves. When she gets back to Alan LaRue, she tells him what she's done, and he gives her a pat on the back. You're doing great. There's going to be a big reward in it for you when we get these jewels back. But don't tell anyone about this. There are leaks all over in this racket, he says. He tells her to meet him again in his apartment at half past three, and he's going to show her 
how they're going to catch this jewel thief, Olga Rocco. So at 3.30, Pearl arrives at LaRue's apartment, and he pulls out this box. It looks like a shoebox wrapped in brown paper, and there's a camera aperture sticking out the end. It's an x-ray camera, he explains. It's technology that actually was built during World War II, which I guess you just don't ask any questions about because a lot of technology was built in World War II. And so he explains that all she needs to do is she needs to aim this box with the aperture facing Olga at close range, which is about three feet away, and pull this specific wire that's sticking out of the back to take the photo. So once she gets the picture, she'll meet LaRue at a bar where they first had that seven and seven drinks, and then he'll get the pictures developed. So Pearl is just giddy with excitement. The big day has come. She waits outside Croydon Hat Company, and she follows LaRue's instructions to the T. She trails Olga from the building to Times Square Station. She sits just a few feet from her on the train, waiting for the right moment. Olga stands up at 55th Street Station, and Pearl stands up and follows behind her. She's about two and a half feet behind Olga when they step out of the subway car. Pearl pulls the wire. There's no sound. There's no flash. Nothing really happens. But Pearl assumes this picture has been taken and sets out to bring it to LaRue. With this mission seemingly accomplished, she walks into the bar where she and LaRue had their drinks. It's the Times Square Bar and Grill. You heard of it? So she's so proud. It is a perfectly executed sting. So LaRue congratulates her. He's super excited. And he's like, listen, hey, meet me at my apartment in the morning and we can look at the developed photos together. Because now they're partners. So the next time she talks to LaRue, he has some bad news. Something was wrong with the camera. The pictures didn't turn out. He tells her, it's going to take a couple days, but I'm going to get a better x-ray camera. So call me in three days. And Pearl is waiting so eagerly for those three days to go by. It feels like it takes forever. And on the third one, she calls LaRue first thing in the morning. And luckily, he says this new camera is up, running, ready to go. And they meet in Union Square so she can pick it up. She meets him at 8 in the morning at Horn and Hor- Horn and Hard at Automat. That is a hard name to say. Hard art. Hard art? Hard art. I feel like it's murder. Muck duck. Okay. The t- <laughs> <laughs> she meets him. She meets him at 8 in the morning at Horn and Hart at Automat. Now, I've seen pictures of this cafeteria. It is unbelievably cute. I know it's not important to the story, but I just have to tell you to get like a sort of idea of where they're at. It is a wall of clear glass with desserts and sandwiches behind it with titles that say sandwiches, pie, and dessert. I don't know why pie and dessert are separate categories, but here we are. And there are big brass spouts that pour coffee and cream with a lever. Like, I genuinely would like to open this again with you, Quinn, and I will pitch it to you later. Oh, Um, I'm in. I think the hipsters would love it. Amen. Absolutely. So LaRue is sitting at the table. And again, this guy is really handsome. So she has to be giddy when she sees him. And he has this huge box in front of him. It's wrapped in green Christmas paper. It's after Christmas, but we're still in holiday paper land. And it has the same pull wire mechanism that she's used to from the box before. And there's a big round aperture sticking out the end. So when Pearl picks it up, it's noticeably bigger and heavier than the first box. 
and LaRue gives her instructions, similar to last time, to aim low, to aim maybe at her waist. That's probably where she's carrying these stolen jewels pinned inside her dress. Gotta make sure we get that imaging so we can get the jewel thief. It's the morning of December 31st. It's New Year's Eve, and it is go time. LaRue drops Pearl off at Olga's subway station and tells her he'll pick her up at Times Square once she's gotten this picture. And Pearl's on top of it. She sits right across from Olga on the subway. She tries not to look at her too much, but she's clocking her, checking every few minutes to make sure she's still there. And when those doors open to Times Square station, Pearl again follows close behind Olga to make sure she's gonna be steady. She takes a knee aims right at Olga's waist and pulls that wire. Boom! Pearl feels her whole body shake and the box nearly jumps out of her hands. The crowd scatters and Olga is left screaming on the floor. There is blood gushing from her leg. Pearl rushes to her and suddenly realizes what happened. She says through tears, I thought I was taking a picture with an x-ray camera. A policeman grabs Pearl and he asks Olga, why did this woman shoot you? And Olga replies through gritted teeth. She is in so much pain. I mean, she just got shot in the leg. And she screams, you fool, she didn't shoot me. It was my husband. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Okay, so we just got a major plot twist. Olga Rocco is convinced that the person who really shot her at the Times Square subway station was not the bright-eyed Pearl Lusk, but actually her husband. I think it's about time we met him. So let's jump back in time, a year and a half, to May 14th, 1945. Olga Trepani and a man named Alphonse Rocco are at the altar getting married. Olga fell in love with Alphonse. He's mysterious, dark, handsome. He loves gray suits. But as soon as their marriage starts, Olga realizes, ooh... She might have made a mistake. She doesn't know nearly as much about Alphonse Rocco as she probably should. Like, for example, his job. She just doesn't know what he does. He disappears for weeks at a time, and sometimes he comes home with pockets full of cash, and sometimes he comes home without any money. So Olga eventually finds out that Alphonse is a small-time car thief. Mm. And this is the red flag. 
she's like, I'm out. She decides to leave him a month before their first anniversary, and she moves back in with her family. She files for an annulment of the marriage, but Alphonse Rocco isn't quite ready to admit defeat. In October 1946, this is about five months after she's broken things off with him, Olga runs into Rocco on the way to work. She's not feeling so hot, and he offers to drive her home. And look, she's not that keen to hang out with him, but like I said, she's not feeling great, so she reluctantly accepts, which it turns out is definitely the wrong call, because as soon as she gets in the car, Alphonse puts a switchblade to her throat and says, don't scream or I'll kill you. So I think it's safe to say she's stuck in the car with him. He drives her to a cabin near Poughkeepsie. He takes her clothes and he keeps her there captive for five days. While she's there, he's threatening her constantly. He shows her his shotgun and his revolver and he says he's going to kill them both unless she gets back with him. Olga has to convince him with all of her might that she will cancel her plans for the annulment So he finally agrees to let her go. He drives her to her cousin's house, and when she arrives, she collapses in relief. Olga goes back to her parents' apartment, and after this, Alphonse starts calling, threatening Olga daily, saying things like, Start your prayers, Olga. You're going to be dead soon. And I'm going to push you under a subway train. And you'll never belong to another man. If I go to the chair for it, I'll kill you before I let that happen. So a month after he kidnapped Olga, I love how we say that so casually. A month after he kidnapped her, Olga's at home with her mom and she's helping set the dinner table. And the window is open to let the air out of the kitchen. And she's setting the table and all of a sudden she feels a very sharp sting on her right leg. So she leans down to inspect what's happening on her leg, and she notices that she's bleeding. There's a hole in the back of her thigh and another on the side. She's just been shot. They rush her to the hospital, where she stays for several days recuperating. And while she's laid up, a detective, an assistant attorney, and a stenographer come to her bedside and ask her a bunch of questions. And she tells them that she's sure that this is the work of her husband, Alphonse Rocco. Let's just like recap what's going on with Alphonse Rocco. He's kidnapped her. He's stalked her. He's shot her. And even with all of that, the police don't give her any protection. Unbelievable. It's so maddening. When she goes back to work on December 9th, after he shot her in the leg, the only person with her is her sister. So as they're walking toward the station near their home, they spot Alphonse concealing himself behind one of those pillars. And I imagine him, like, waiting behind a pillar, like, not really hiding well, but just, like, popping his head out. I mean, he's fully stalking her. So Olga calls the police from work, but the lieutenant who answers tells her, oh, don't worry about it, which is exactly what you want to hear as someone who has just been kidnapped, stalked, and shot. And later in the day, Alphonse calls her at work and he tells her he was watching her. And it's like, no shit, Al, you're not that great at this. I saw you. He says that the first time he didn't aim right and next time he's going to kill her. And Alphonse calls her at work every day after that. And Olga is calling the police again and again. And this lieutenant is dismissing her. Every time she calls the police, they tell her the same thing. 
not to worry. <laughs> I just, if I was shot and the person who did it was following me and I kept hearing, just don't worry about it. I, I think I'd go crazy. <laughs> so it's December 20th. And finally, the police hear her fear enough that they finally send an officer to her work to escort her home. Two officers drive her home, and she tells them everything that's been happening to her. The kidnapping, the stalking, the gunshot wound. And they listen to this, and they decide in their infinite wisdom that one day's enough. They don't need to come back and escort her to work the next day. Nope. So on December 30th, Olga goes to their headquarters at Bergen Street to speak to an officer higher up in the chain of command, maybe try to get something done, and she meets with Inspector Reynolds. She tells him the whole story. And and here's the thing. This is going to surprise you. He listens. <gasps> I know. What? Yes. So he calls the precinct and gets this damned lieutenant on the phone and yells at him and says, I've got a woman here who's hysterical. What are you doing? Waiting for a homicide? Putting aside the fact that he does call her hysterical, right, 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 right. this is the first person to sort of take her seriously and bring up the fact that this could be really dangerous. They should be doing something about it. I mean, who would have thought that what she wanted most was to be listened to? Wow. Shocker of all shocks. So he commands them to put detectives at her home to watch her, to protect her. And that night, the detectives are waiting outside her door and they promise to protect her and escort her to work. And I guess the past couple weeks of stalking, just the, the fear just runs off her little back and she's fine. She's safe all of a sudden. Well, I don't know if you could say she's safe because the next oh. morning is New Year's Eve, December 31st. Oh, God. And guess what? The detectives are gone. <laughs> You mean, you mean them telling her, don't be frightened, wasn't enough to stop the stalker? What? Believe it or not. Okay. Well, don't worry. You know who's going to walk her to the train? Who? Her sister. Ah, uh, women supporting women. We love to see it. So she goes to the 55th Street station in Brooklyn, and there on the platform, she notices something kind of strange. There's a girl there carrying a large Christmas present, and it has something protruding from one end of the box. Now this girl sits down across from Olga on the train and Olga's kind of eyeing her a little bit and notices it looks like there's an aperture of a camera sticking out of the box, but you know, Olga doesn't pay her a ton of mind. She's never seen her before. Olga and her sister ride the train uptown. Her sister gets off at Herald Square just one stop before Olga's at Times Square. Olga is now alone. The train comes in to Times Square Olga gets off the train, and just then she hears this thunderous blast. And at that point, she feels a sharp pain in her leg. She reels over onto her back, and blood is gushing out of her leg. She's practically swimming in the amount of blood. Somehow, she stays conscious, and she's surrounded by strangers, and she says, I wonder what happened to the police. I guess he was too smart for them. Amidst this chaos, the blonde that has been sitting across from her on the train, 19-year-old Pearl Lusk, rushes to Olga's side, blubbering and confused, and a police officer runs over and grabs the package from Pearl and rips it open. And inside, you aren't going to believe this, there's no x-ray camera. 
I know, I know. It's actually a 12 gauge sawed off shotgun and it's wedged between two wooden cream cheese boxes. There's a wire rigged around the trigger and a bean can around the muzzle to look like the lens of a camera. Olga is rushed to the hospital. She's in critical condition. She has a giant gash in her thigh that is just bleeding profusely. She is near death. The police grab a horribly confused and distraught Pearl Lusk and they take her to the station. They interrogate her for hours and they are trying to poke holes in this unbelievable tale that she is telling. They show Pearl a picture of Olga with her newlywed husband and she recognizes him. He's handsome and he's wearing that same damn gray double-breasted suit. (gasps) Does he only own one suit, do you think? I think it's just the one gray suit, and he has been told he looks so good at it in it that he wears it all the time. Yeah, it's got to smell terrible at this point. It's got to smell awful. But whatever he paid Ugh. for it, it's if he's wearing it this often, it sort of comes at a discount. Well, the cost per wear is quite low, yeah. frankly. Excellent. And he's committing most of his crimes in the gray suit. Back to the police station. Pearl looks at this picture and is like, that's Alan LaRue. And they reply... No, that's Alphonse Rocco. And in that instant, Pearl realizes that she's been duped. Wait a minute. So you're telling us that the name Alan LaRue is not a real name? No one saw it coming. You could knock me over with a feather. So (laughs) Pearl is sitting in this dingy interrogation room. And I gotta be honest, I feel like it's very film noir, 1940s vibes. And she's in her faux lamb coat with a giant white bow perched on her hat. She's she's dabbing her eyes with a little powder puff as she's answering their questions. And listen, this has to be the craziest thing the officers have ever seen. I mean, you just heard what happened and it's unbelievable. But even with the absurdity of it all, they believe her and they start to hunt for this Alphonse Rocco and I think it's worth noting that they believe this story but when Olga had hard evidence that she was kidnapped stalked and shot they did not believe her I just wanted to let you all know I wanted to just put a little button a little bow on that moment if you will or a giant bow a giant white bow yes so the press goes bananas for this. They go bananas on fire. They go bananas flambe for this story. I think we understand why. It's a wild tale. And the papers are reading camera gun all over the place in the headlines. And they're calling Pearl the pretty blonde dupe. And they're calling Olga the attractive brunette riddled with buckshot. And Alphonse Rocco is, of course, the jealousy-maddened husband who masterminded the fantastic remote-control murder plot. Now, here's my question. Mm. In these articles, how fast were they coming out and were they able to fact-check everything? Well, that's just it. When you read all these different sources of information, uh, I have the feeling that one person says it and everyone else copies it and then somebody else gets another piece of intel and 10 more papers run with that idea. Right, and if there's a little kernel of exaggeration, another paper will pick that up and blow it up out of wild proportions. Right, they and all see want, this in this story. It's yeah. outrageous enough to begin with. It's got enough 
fantastic <laughs> touches. So get oh, your totally. mitts off it. Stop adding all these touches. But they do. So we've been talking about what happened with Pearl and Olga. And I think we got to take a minute and we got to talk about Alphonse Rocco. So Alphonse believes that his plan has just worked perfectly. His ex-wife is going to die from the gunshot inflicted by Pearl, and Pearl will take the fall. No notes. Two thumbs up. Would do again. Highly recommend five stars. So now it's time for him to scurry away and make his escape. So he's thought about this plan for a long time, right? Using a fake name, Rocco tricks his neighbors into driving him 150 miles north to Cairo, New York. And of course, this misadventure leads to Rocco stealing their car. They say, do what you know, and he knows stealing cars. So he steals this car, and in doing so, though, he gives the police a kernel of information that will eventually lead to his demise. The police are able to connect Alphonse to this car theft, and they're able to pursue that lead in the shooting of Olga. What happens next is reported really differently depending on what newspaper you're reading. Here is what we know in general. So Alphonse drives up to this little Catskills town called Broom Center. He parks at his friend Frank Nash's house and he forces his way in with a gun. He waits there for a couple of days, threatening them with Alphonse not getting any sleep, waiting to go to his next location. However, when he is there, there's a huge snowstorm and he is stuck in there. And finally, when the snow lets up, he goes to his car and he tries to start it and it does not start. So then Alphonse decides to walk 12 miles in the snow, hungry and tired from lack of sleep from the couple of days, which not a great idea. Yeah, he's exhausted. He's trekking through the snow on foot and he arrives at a small town called Gilboa. He finds a small diner in this town, but unfortunately, it's closed. And as he's standing there on the street in the cold, somebody spies him and recognizes him as the man they've seen in the paper. And they call the state troopers. So the next morning, the storm lets up and the police marshal 100 men to surround this 35-mile radius of South Gilboa. That morning, Alphonse is walking in the snow and he finds an isolated cabin in the woods. He forces his way into the home at gunpoint and yelling, the police will never take me alive. So he walks into the home of Harry Lewis and Mrs. Harry Lewis. Her name's Mrs. Harry Lewis? Listen, her name is Mrs. Harry Lewis, according to the papers. I want to be very clear. We do not know her name, because in the newspapers, she's just referred to as Mrs. Harry Lewis. Well, and in the 40s, women didn't have names. Honestly, she doesn't have an identity in the papers, but I would like for us to talk about her because she kind of rules. Yeah, under his eye, right? <laughs> totally. They have a toddler asleep. So this couple tries to remain calm, keeping the situation as mellow as possible, but they're scared. And I want to say kudos to Mrs. Harry Lewis because... She keeps her cool. She gives Alphonse a sandwich, some tea, and a sleeping bag, sort of as if to say, please leave. And he actually does. Alphonse, armed with this sleeping bag, leaves. He wanders into the woods, unaware at this point that there are six troopers that have spotted him. And they call for backup and follow his fresh-made footprints in the snow. 
Alphonse finds this huge evergreen tree that he can use as a cover, and using it, he slips into his sleeping bag, and suddenly he hears the approach of what sounds like 50 police officers. So he takes his gun, and he just waves it in their general direction, and he just fires a few shots blindly. The police hear this, and they scream, Come out, you skunk! Which, I love that insult in the 1940s. Wow, what a time to be alive. And suddenly, the bullets just rain on Alphonse from those 50 officers, and it strikes him right in the chest. And Alphonse dies underneath that evergreen tree and a full moon. It's all very picturesque. And among the items they find on Alphonse are $63.93, a draft card, a letter, and a picture of his wife, Olga Trapani Rocco. Alphonse Rocco is dead, and they bury him at Staten Island Cemetery in the same damn gray suit he's been wearing his whole dang life. Probably so. Right? I mean, all jokes aside, he's left this nasty trail of damage in his wake. Olga... She ends up having her left leg amputated six inches above the knee. And it's the same leg that she was shot the first time when she was setting the table for dinner. Well, and again, we don't know that to be true because some of the newspapers say it was the other leg. This goes back to uh, everybody has a different idea. But regardless, this woman got shot twice. Whether it was in one leg or two remains to be seen. So she's lying in her hospital bed recovering from the amputation, rehabilitating, and a nurse leans over to her and whispers, your husband is dead. To which Olga replies, ah, now I can get a good night's rest. I mean, I just hate, the one thing I will say is the nurse calling Alphonse her husband makes me mad because if Olga was to be believed and her wishes were to be granted, she would have had that marriage annulled and a restraining order against him, and the fact that he's referred to as her husband. And that he dies, her husband. Exactly. Is like, ugh. It feels like a win. Ugh. It feels like a win for him and a loss for her, right? That's that's a hard pill to swallow. Well, in the end, Pearl was released from jail. A grand jury refused to charge her, so she does get off, but I imagine she bears some pretty severe psychological scars from this? I don't know how you couldn't. So when Olga hears about Pearl being released, she reportedly said, she may have been just a dupe of my husband, as she says, but if that is true, she still should be put away for her stupidity. Olga will have five operations on her leg, and she will walk on crutches with an artificial limb for the rest of her life. She tells the New York Times... I used to love to dance. I hope to dance again. In addition to the extreme physical and emotional trauma she endured, Olga was weighed down by medical debt from the incident for her entire life. It's like adding insult to injury. I mean, she loses her job and she begins selling hats and jewelry and she suffers from nervousness and hysteria, what it's called at the time, but we would call it what it is, which is PTSD, and she suffers from that for a long time. Olga tries to sue the NYPD for $200,000 because they failed to protect her. But according to the judge, there's no way the police could have known that Pearl would be her assailant. 
So they do not award her this money and they tell her the city can offer her nothing but sympathy. And maybe an unwarranted diagnosis of hysteria, like you said, which, you know, is also on the table, but maybe she declines. Ugh. Well, that's the story. Enough uh, fantastic touches for you? I mean, honestly, the fact that this hasn't been made a movie is shocking to me. We should option it. And who do you want to play? I mean, I guess I'm blonde. I'll play Pearl. Uh, Yeah, and I'm older and wiser. (laughs) And Um, hotter. I'll play Olga. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, listen, all joking aside, I think this case is so important because it's still so relevant today. You know, I mean, we talk about this being in the 1940s and having like a film noir vibe and a big bow and this fun cafeteria where it's vending machine pies. I think it's a story about domestic abuse. It's a story about stalking. And today we see that police still don't take women seriously when they report those things, especially when it's their spouse or their partner. Listen, things have changed since the time of Pearl and Olga, 1947. I mean, not fast enough, but it's changing. You know, in 1990, California passed the first anti-stalking law. So things are changing. There's more laws on the books. There's more protections for women. However, we're not there yet. There's still a lot of work to do. I think with background checks, I mean, owning guns, I mean, a lot of things, we have a lot of work to do. And I think in the story of Olga and Pearl, you know, this happened in 1947. It's 2022. Let's do better. Let's fight for better laws. If you are a victim of stalking or domestic violence, there is help available to you. You can call the Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. It's available 24-7, and they can speak in 200 different languages. You are not alone. And to end on a lighter note, here's a piece of unsolicited advice from Carrie and myself. At the end of the day, if someone offers you a job to take a picture, maybe look at the camera. Maybe find that there's proof of a camera. Am I wrong in saying that? Proof of camera. Ask for proof of camera. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it might just be the case we talk about next. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins and Julie Magruder. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Carrie Ipema and Quinlan Posner. Our sound designer and editor is Arlen Ginsberg. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. We used many sources to tell today's story. Among them, we found the following sources particularly helpful. A New Yorker article titled The Perils of Pearl and Olga by St. Clair McElway, and several archival newspaper articles, including one the New York Daily News titled Far From Picture Perfect by Mara Bobson, and one from the Philadelphia Inquirer titled For This Woman... The Case Will Never Be Closed by Edgar Williams. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.